Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. Today, a session for you on investing in companies. Now, we've talked a little bit in previous episodes about our ETF strategy and how you can manage your wealth through this cycle. Uh, people are still interested in investing in individual companies, so we're, we're going to do a session on that today. It's worth uh, just harking back to our previous episode on the risk hierarchy. So obviously, investing, say, in a world ETF is probably the lower end of the risk spectrum for equities, uh, coming down to countries and sectors. Investing in individual companies uh, necessarily entails a higher risk of permanent loss. And we've also talked in previous episodes about the capitalist distribution and how hard it really is to pick those big outperformers. Um, so where we see investing in companies and where it can have a real part to play in somebody's portfolio is um, in what we call wealth three, especially, uh, that being your, your long-term investments and your legacy investments. Now, obviously, if you're investing in an individual company, Steve, you're not really that interested in trying to pick the next big thing because, uh, as we know, times change you and won't. companies go bust. <laughs> and yes, yeah, statistically speaking, very difficult to do. Uh, so the types of companies that might ideally suit a wealth three long-term investment, typically the sort of big, mature systemic companies, big energy companies or oil companies, that, that kind of thing, which are currently out of favour, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you, you're going to say tobacco companies. I, I am. I probably won't, uh, <laughs> won't be allowed to say that. But um, I can. The, the, and the types of investments that Buffett himself would look at when they yeah, get yeah. very cheap, if the dividend yield is 8 9 10% plus and there's, um, there's a proven you know, decades of, of sound capital management and strong balance sheets and low debt, those mature companies can be worth a look just for consistently compounding your wealth in the background. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, Steve, some thoughts on that? It's a bit of an anathema because we've just spent, you know, a little time sort of saying buy ETFs and don't buy companies. I, like everybody else, like to buy companies because, I don't know, for some bizarre psychological reason. So, and part of that, I think, is, uh, is I suspect, there's always talk about companies and about what they do. As you say, Pete, I want to deal a little bit with the way Buffett invests that I don't think a lot of people get from Buffett. And this in turn talks again about out-of-favour sectors or out-of-favour countries. Not so much countries with Buffett, but more with sectors. If you look at sector analysis in the US, the really stable sort of sectors are the ones like consumer staples, utilities, telecoms. They're fairly boring sectors. Now, the benefit of those sectors are if you buy them cheap, you get a great dividend yield, right? And you get potential capital growth. And you can hold it for a long time. 
because the original price you paid was really, really cheap. You bought a big company. And as I say, if you look at Buffett, Buffett's investments are all weighted towards the steady, stable sectors, a consumer staples. You know, people go out and they buy, you know, Kraft Heinz or they buy baked beans or, you know, bread and those sorts of things. He doesn't really buy IT sectors. And even Apple has become a systemic type of company in the sense that the smartphone and what Apple will provide are now basically infrastructure type companies. You know, nobody will be without a smartphone and it will be like being without energy. It's just not going to happen. And so the way Buffett does it, when you look at the sectoral approach, you go, well, these are the, these are the lack of, uh, these are the low volatility sectors. They're the ones that don't have the huge winners, but nor do they have the huge losers. And so what you find is you just get this sort of dividend thing that Buffett says, when Buffett invests, everything is compared to a bond. So Buffett says, well, look, if I can get five in a bond, how much can I get in a, a stock? And he says, well, you've got to treat stocks like a bond. Why? Because you're going to hold them for the long term. So if bonds are paying five or six or whatever at the moment, they're paying nothing like that. But just for comparison, what Buffett says is, well, look, if I can get a dividend of, say, seven or eight when a bond is paying six, and I look at that company and say, well, look, BP or uh, British American Tobacco or whatever company it is, is probably going to last a long time, like Consumer Procter and Gamble and Colgate Palmolive, Kraft Heinz, Apple, then you want to buy it cheap and then you can hold it. You can still rebalance and Buffett does that. But what I'm saying is if you get them cheap enough, you can hold them over the long term without needing to buy and sell as we do in the ETF strategy. Because first of all, you're working on a different time frame. Okay, that's the first thing. And you've got more choice among individual companies in other sort of areas. Yeah, so Buffett's great genius in many ways over the decades has been not just identifying the great companies, but also just waiting for that big opportunity. Yep. Uh, famously, Amex during the salad oil crisis, everybody's got a smartphone. Those, yep. those Apple shares will be going very well. Same again with Coca-Cola and in more recent years. Um, I, I don't know. We'll see when the, when the uh, quarterly... Uh, filings come out, but I assume in recent times, things like Suncor, yep. Energy, um, Occidental Oil, Kraft Heinz, I assume, you know, th those kind of toll booths, if you like, type companies yep. that will just keep throwing off income. I mean, if you look at uh, Berkshire's um, annual report, the income that some of those stocks fl throw off is unbelievable because yep. of the scale of, of yeah. uh, Berkshire's uh, investments, like Apple is just pumping out the dividends. Now, I suppose uh, let's put a quick disclaimer out because uh, session on investing in companies, obviously we're going to have to talk about some individual companies. These aren't recommendations. We don't know when you're listening. We don't know your personal circumstances. So all we're going to do is talk about some example companies that we've invested in, yep. other people have invested in and so on. It's not financial advice. So just with that out of the way. So the types of things that we've been doing in recent times, well, the most out of favour sector has been for five of the past six years has been energy. Yep. At the time of this podcast recording, we're in the midst of an oil price war. So uh, the Saudis and uh, the Russians having a kind of a standoff and it's a bit of game theory as to who can hold out for the longest. 
uh, Saudi Arabia is just pumping out the oil. And this is at a time of a great demand shock. So the oil price is now at what, 29 bucks or something, yeah, down yeah. from 70. Uh, for as long as this uh, coronavirus goes on and as for as long as Saudi keeps pumping out the oil, I mean, the oil price could go, who knows, 20, 10. Absolutely. But um, with companies like, I mean, this is where, you know, we talk about wealth, three long-term investments. Companies like BP and Shell, you know, they've been around for decades. And I'm looking at things like, BP is trading at the same kind of share price it was at back in the 1990s. Shell is back to where it was 20 years ago. Dividend yields, sure, dividends could be cut, but you're looking at it and go, well, if bonds are paying, as you mentioned, next to nothing, yep. and you've got dividend yields close to the double-digit levels, uh, those are the kind of things that I'm interested in for the long term. And as you said, um, you don't go in 100% on day one. If the oil price goes to 20, I'll have a bit more. And if the oil price goes to single digits, as has happened once in the past 30 years, then I'll just buy more and more units. And that's the genius of the Kelly criterion is that when stuff gets cheap, uh, don't die wondering. Yes. But as we mentioned, the risk hierarchy, this works well with companies with strong balance sheets, with ETFs. It doesn't work well with young growth companies with high levels of debt. Yeah, we work and... You can you know, average, or Uber, <laughs> yeah, Uber you, you can average mate. down into those companies uh, all the way to zero. Yep. And uh, as the Kelly model and the, the academic papers show, if you go to zero, you ain't never coming back from yeah. there. So Part of it is also too, when you talk about companies and, you know, I, I hate bringing out Warren Buffett because not everybody can be Warren Buffett, but he's got some really good sens- sensible principles that you can adopt. One of them is, and one I want to discuss, is about the idea of competitive advantage. And, you know, Buffett's always banging on about, yeah, got to have a moat, you know, this sort of thing. That's quite true. There's two things people should do. One is they should rush off and Google capital cycle theory, because that will tell you a lot about the the industry dynamics. There's a great book out from Edward Chancellor called uh, Capital Returns. You should get that. The other one is a book, any book I would recommend by Professor Bruce Greenwald. Uh, the one that is really good is called Competition Demystified. Now, you know, to save me waffling on about those, the main point to go through is, will a company survive? And let me use oil as a current example. Most developed countries have their own oil companies that are large. Part of it is because it's about geopolitics and it's about resources as terrible as it is, countries can't fight wars if they haven't got an energy source. When you look at uh, England, they've got BP, they've got Shell. America has Exxon. France has Total. Uh, Italy has Eni. You've got Permex. You've got Saudi Arabia has now just come to the market. And let me give you an example. I invested in BP when the uh, spill happened. I can't remember what the name of it was. But anyway, the BP oil spill where the, the pipe had burst. Now, it got down to, I think, if I remember correctly, about 26 bucks. And people were saying, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost $20 billion. Well, that was about one year of BP's cash flow. Now, that's the example where you go, most people would say, and most analysts too, because they're working on a shorter time frame, would say, oh my God, you know, I'm not going to invest in BP. But if you look at it then and say, well, will it go broke? Probably not. Okay. It's as simple in my mind as saying, well, would the British government allow 50,000 people to go onto the unemployment list from BP? Probably not. Okay. Well, there'll be something worked out there. So that's the sort of thing you want to look at. Now, I don't say to everybody, you know, oh, it's really easy peasy. And there's steps that we talk about in our book to go through. 
but it's not as complex as trying to pick, which a lot of people do, is talk about demand growth. Okay, it's not about growth. It's about the mispricing. If you can get a dollar for 60 cents, I don't care if it's going to grow or not, even if it just keeps up with inflation and it pays me a, you know, a seven or eight percent dividend, then I'm quite happy to to be in that. That's what Buffett does. He looks for the mispricing. He doesn't look necessarily for growth because if he did, he'd be looking at the spectrum where all the others are trying to knock themselves out, picking the next Amazon or Google or, you know, Uber or WeWork and those sorts of things. And as we know with those, those companies have got really volatile stock prices and they don't make any profit. You can't actually value Uber on its earnings because it doesn't make any money. It's a really important point to, to do the companies in the context of, because what we find is when you look at an, an oil sector and you go, oh, you know, oil energy sector is really out of favour, there will be companies in there that will be, you know, stabilisers of the oil supply. BP, Eni, Total, Exxon, all of these big players have seen this play out hundreds of times before. Yeah, and the marginal producers, I mean, this is one of the things I learned in the resources industry as I worked in it, is that when the commodity price goes down, the marginal producers drop out and the exploration dries up. Uh, so in oil, the uh, the shale exploration will stop and some of the frackers will go bust, marginal producers will drop out and you'll be left with the big producers with uh, the lowest cost. And then the barrel. price will just go up again. Yeah, because it goes in a cycle. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because we were talking about this these um, types of investments last year when Tesla was tripling and Beyond Meat and Uber and Lyft and all of these floats. And you, t- you talk to people about investments with a 7 to 10% yield that will just comfortably even with no capital growth, will double your wealth over a decade or hopefully yeah. less, and hopefully with some capital growth on top. Um, but people will look at you like you've got three heads because a 7 8 9% return just sounds so boring. Yeah. Um, How could you not be in Tesla? And yeah. It's like quite easily. But this is the nature of a market. When the, when the tide goes out and the capital growth isn't there anymore, yeah. what are you left with? Well, a whole lot of companies with no income, no dividend, and just a falling stock price. Yeah. Whereas um, some of these big producers, well, if they get cheaper, we'll just have some more. Another one that we've particularly, Steve, you've been very keen on when the sanctions were on and Russia had its currency crisis, the biggest gas reserves in the world, employs more than 50,000 people. And in fact, it's more than 50% government owned in Russia. I think so, yeah. So if you're looking for businesses that don't go go under, that would be near the top of the tree. You never know uh, for these things. But... um, and There's also things, Pete, like, you know, you can close your ears now because I'm going to talk about tobacco companies. Um, so if you look at, you know, ones like Imperial Brands, uh, Altria, British American, British American tobacco. tobacco, thank you. They are, over their lifetime, the best investments that people have ever made, right? They are the most successful companies. Why are the most successful companies? Because they've got an addictive product. Governments, you know, contrary to what they say, love them because it raises an absolute bucket load of taxes. That is a moat. Now, people will talk about vaping. That may or may not wash out whatever happens there, but there's problems with that now. And so the tobacco companies have become cheap because, oh my God, they're all going to move to vaping. Okay, well, that doesn't really matter if I've got a, a 
a stock that I can buy that can produce a consistent cash flow that it has done it for the last hundred years and you know has got very little capital expenditure. You know, just keep pumping the tobacco in, the filter in one end, roll them out as cigarettes. You know that you've got an addictive customer base, which I'm sorry, that's the way it is. Customer stickiness, as they call it. So when you look at that and you've got growth markets, to be quite honest, in places like China and Africa and India, where more and more people probably will smoke because there's a certain status there about, I'm so wealthy, I can buy cigarettes. So when you look at that as a model to buy, you would normally go, oh, you know, who'd want to buy that? But that's the way you look at it. You, you have to again say, will these companies survive? Yes, they will. Okay, well, that's a really good base from which to work. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to hold them for 20 years or five years or 10 years, but what it says is, look, this is a really good base to start with. And if things change in five years, well, okay, you can make a judgment there. But what you understand about capital cycle theory and about competitive advantages, it's not about demand growth. It's about keeping other people away from what your product is so you can continue just to supply it. Yeah, well, the, the rates of some of the dividend yields now that are being thrown off in those companies, you'll get your money back in six yeah, years. Yeah. So uh, you don't need to worry too much about the long run. There's another thing going on in recent years, the ESG, ethical, sustainable yeah. investing. And, yeah. and that's one of the things that has actually seen uh, tobacco companies way out of favour because a fund manager, you know, it's a difficult to sell, a, sell their product if they're invested in so-termed unethical companies. Now, you know, from a personal disclosure standpoint, I, I'm not really that keen on tobacco companies. This is my own ethical filter. Yeah, yeah. But a similar thing going on in oil. I've got a friend of mine who's a well-known analyst in, in London who's saying to me recently, just be careful on this, this oil play because ESG at the moment, fund managers are having to move away from, you know, and a lot of it is just plain virtue signaling. We're moving from perceived unethical companies, fossil fuels into more sustainable investments. But one of the things you do see through the cycle is when you get, go into a recession and so a lot of this stuff will go out the window and people will just go to the safer bets yeah. where the returns are. What you'll get to, Pete, is every market cycle has the same thing, right? You have star CEOs, right? So you have Adam Newman in WeWork, you have Kalanick down at Uber, you know, you get these uh, Reed Hastings at Netflix, you know, Bezos at Amazon. You get these heroes that are, you know, changing the face of capitalism. Then you get things exactly like you said. You get ESG. The theme is ESG. Well, I can tell you from about 2003, maybe a bit earlier to about 2008, even longer, 2010, it was all solar energy. It was all about, you know, investing green companies to save the world. Well, you know, I can tell you that didn't end well. So what you get is, again, and now you've got the theme of ESG. Why? Because now I'm going to put an ETF together and I'm going to charge you 1.5% and you're going to feel really good about it. But, you know, let's be honest. We're in investing to make money. And I'm not saying we need to be ruthless, but what I'm saying is we do need to be practical and say, well, if we're going to save the world, that doesn't mean that I should be buying solar panels at three times the price because I'm a good guy. You know, and a Tesla is the perfect example. You know, yeah, it's an electric car, um, which probably runs on coal, by the way. Um, and when you look at it, you go, yep, that's great. He's trying to save the world, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want to buy Tesla at 900 bucks. Well, and for a start now, it's back at about 500 or 400 or something. But what I'm saying is that 
yes, you know, you can you can do ESG investing, but the the more it's in the headlines, the less likely you're to get a good price on it. And hence the reason, part of the reason why oil is also so cheap, That's because right. a lot of fund managers are saying, oh, geez, you know, BP, well, I'm not going to do that. You touched on a really good point there. It is actually uncanny when you step back through the cycles, how the same things keep coming around. Peak oil yeah. in the late 90s, the internet's going to change the world. Yes, yes, which, yes. in a funny sort of a way, well, yes, the internet did change the world, but it didn't stop the, the Nasdaq getting but it was utterly, a rotten price. <laughs> utterly crucified. Um, well, perversely, what people don't realise is all of that capital, and this is why capital cycle theory is important, all of the capital poured in to the internet sector then what happened was, of course, the projections never matched the reality. And so what happened was they all then went bust. Then new companies came in and said, look, you laid all that cable for $5 billion. We've picked it up for a billion. So instead of charging customers 100 bucks a month, we can now charge them 20 Then you get a boom, right? But the boom happens after the industry crashes. Everyone goes, I don't want to invest in it. That's the best time to go, actually... Now's the best time to invest in it because the competition's done. You're left with an industry structure that's fairly standard and the companies are cheap. And, and that's what happens. That's when people go, now the internet's everywhere. And it's the same with solar panels. Solar panels boomed, people overpaid for them. Then the markets crashed and now solar panels are cheap because of all the capital that went in beforehand. Yeah, so, and it is actually, it's amazing how every bubble in stocks always seems to involve, involve some form of new technology commerce yeah. it, because the, the new technology sometimes is bogus or or just based on projections of future ideas flying to mars or yep. goodness knows what else drones yeah self-driving cars I suppose other things that we saw 2006 i mean there was the concept that china could just grow at double digit rates forever there was uh, end of the world scenarios on global warming which have again come around on a, you know not to downplay environmental issues, but it's just the same themes just come around at the peak of every cycle. Uh, Star CEOs that you mentioned in a tech bubble. The point we're making here is if you're investing in companies, this is for your wealth three. So it's um, long-term and legacy investments that they're just going to keep on compounding away in the background, throwing off seven, eight, ten percent income. If you get a bit of growth as well, then that's great. You do need to buy at a good price. And the sort of things we're talking about there the out-of-favour stuff, really, at the moment. Telcos, oil and gas, yep. uh, energy. European financials. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, they're so cheap, it's ridiculous. Now, that doesn't mean rush in and buy them. Yeah. But what it says is there's probably some, you know, after the world blows up, pardon the pun, there will be some companies there that will have seen them through. Predominantly, now, not all the time, but predominantly, that is the bigger end of the town because the big end of town can come in and squash the little end of town. And that's traditionally, that's what happens. Now, sorry, Pete, just while I dive in, I just want to mention another one. Uh, Jeremy Siegel has a book called The Future for Investors, written in 2005. If you go back and read that book, I can tell you that it's quite shocking because what Siegel showed was the if you had bought, I think, the S&P, it might have been, at the original point when it started, if you'd have bought those companies, you'd have actually made more money than you would have by choosing other companies. And again, you look at it and go, oh, you know, who'd want to buy British American tobacco? I mean, it's an awful company, but it's cheap. 
And that's the point of investing. Investing is about getting something that is undervalued. And, and, and as they also say in value investing, you're getting a dollar for 60 cents. Even if you're wrong and you say, oh, look, I was wrong. It's worth 90 cents. You're still a long way from it. And that's what it's about. It's not about, for most people, I should say, not for everybody, but it's not about things like this is a dollar and it's going to go to a dollar fifty next year. The reason why, as we talked about in previous sessions, is because most of the experts get the analysis wrong. There's mean reversion, there's market cycles, there's new competitors, all of this sort of thing. The company you buy at a dollar actually goes to 80 cents, not to a dollar fifty. Yeah, that's exactly it. So in the spirit of the Kelly criterion, you want to be around for all those future opportunities. Yeah. So if you're going to invest in companies, remember the risk hierarchy, look at mature systemic, profitable businesses, long track records, so the Lindy effect, if it's been around for a long time, yep. more likely to be around for a lot longer to come. Uh, yeah, Low debt, proven capital management and strong dividend streams through yep. the cycle. So uh, I think that's uh, a good place to finish up on today's uh, session. Thanks for joining. Look forward to joining you on the next session. Cheers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.